So what I'm going to talk about is decolonizing, decolonizing Tunisia's decolonization. So this is, uh, in fact, first of all, a historiographical exercise in looking back at what has been written about the Tunisian past and the Tunisian national liberation struggle and revising it and changing it so as to bring out the more anti-colonial aspects of it. Um, so it's, first of all, uh, a revision or a revision of our relationship between the present and the past. So I want to start with this quotation from uh, Jean-Ralph uh, Troyes, who wrote a very good book about the uses of memory. Uh, and what he asks us to do in this quotation is to understand that the past is always written in the present. And so the people who survived that past are asking us, what for? Why, why, why is the history that we are writing written? And what is the point of writing this history? So that meaning is also in its purpose. Uh, he writes that empirical exactitude as defined and verified in specific context is necessary to historical production. In other words, not anything goes. It does need to be or to approximate or to try and be correct. But the point is that the past, as it is rendered in books, commercial exhibits, or commemorations, cannot be conceived only as vehicles for the transmission, transmission of knowledge. They must establish some relation to that knowledge. In other words, that they are specifically political. And even if they disavow a political intent, that is also infused with politics. In the case of Tunisia, the question of Tunisian decolonization and what was actually a split in the national liberation movement between Habib Bourguiba, who went on to run the national, the national movement after 1956, after full decolonization, uh, and between him and Salah Ben Youssef, who represented the Arab nationalist wing, is very much an issue that both determined the course of the Tunisian past up to the present and has now been resurrected as an object of political contestation during the post-revolutionary interlude, precisely because the people who were allied with Salah Ben Youssef were repressed and were excluded from the re historical record of the past, which is called history. Uh, because his constituents were by and large the poor of the country, including both in the urban cores in Tunis, but especially in the periphery, the repression of his memory has also been a mechanism for justifying the specific past, uh, path of post-colonial development. Uh, for that reason, the debate over what happened to the movement which he represented or for which he was the avatar is very much related to both the course of post-colonial underdevelopment, the causes of the Tunisian revolution, and what has happened after that revolution vis-a-vis -vis inclusion and exclusion in the developmental pact. So I'm going to put a lot more uh, muscle and flesh on that skeletal outline as I proceed through the presentation, but I think it's very helpful to keep that in mind as a kind of guiding thread. So this is uh, an outline of what I'm going to talk about in the remainder of the presentation. Uh, the first section I will talk about colonial capitalism under the French uh, and the global process of decolonization. I will then zero in on the Tunisian arms struggle from 1952 to 
1954, which was the first stage of the armed struggle. Uh, I will then go on to the split between Habibo Ergiba and Salah Ben Yusuf, which occurred in 1955. And then I will move on to the Yusufite Rebellion, or the Falaga, the second revolution, or the second wave of Falaga, which was the term used for the anti-colonial militants, which occurred largely in 1956. Uh, I will discuss how that rebellion spread across the country, and then how it ended. And then I will discuss how it led to a pattern of enduring neo-colonial underdevelopment, a pattern of regionally and spatially uneven underdevelopment uh, under neo-colonial capitalism, which continued from 1956 until 2011. I will then discuss the post-revolutionary truth commission where uh, these issues of historical memory and issues of inclusion and exclusion have <coughs> emerged into a public dialogue in the present and have been very much an issue of post-revolutionary political contestation. So very often colonialism is framed as simply a question of political sovereignty or who had political control over a country. And so decolonization is then framed as a direct transfer of political control over a country. Uh, in fact, at the time, uh, in the discourse of the Neo Destor, or the, the party which was running the anti-colonial liberation project in Tunisia, it, the issue of colonization was framed in very different terms. So this is from a document which the, which the Destor party produced in Cairo, where Habib Bouarghiba was in 1948, where he was talking about the economic policy of the protectorate. Central to this is questions of the means of production. Uh, who owned them, who made use of them, who benefited from them, and who lost because they could not benefit from them. What the Neo-Destor drew was a linear relationship between the impoverishment of the Tunisian masses and increases in the value of the land and the exploitation of the subsoil, referring specifically to mineral resources. It basically drew a socioeconomic map of an impoverishment of the masses, a heavy tax burden, and a high proportion of undernourished people, including a growth uh, in unemployment. By the end of the colonial period in 1955, the number of unemployed men was something like 300,000, and this was a rough estimate. The rural population was 1.8 million, and the overall population was about 2.7 million. So you can see that between one-third and one-half of the adult work male workforce was actually unemployed by the end of the colonial period. This happened in part uh, because the land itself had been alienated from the population starting in 18, 1885 um, through uh, when, the, when the government put in when the mandate government put in place a land register meant to provide the legal architecture for dispossessing the population of the land. Uh, by the end of that period about 800,000 hectares of the very best land, most of it in the highly the zones which received the most precipitation and which were the most fertile have been dispossessed uh, from the Tunisian population. And this was uh, where about half of the cereals or half the soft wheat, about close to half the hard wheat, a uh, significant portion of the barley 
uh, was farmed and harvested by, by French colonial settlers. And much of it, in turn, was exported. Furthermore, the colonial apparatus itself uh, employed at least half of the colonial male settler population. And they were employed directly, and they received their salaries directly from taxes, which were levied on the Tunisian population. So what you saw was a system, a deliberate system, in which the impoverishment of the Tunisian population went hand in hand with the well-being of the French colonial population. And value flows in the form of mostly cereals, phosphates, also wine and, oli and olive oil from Tunisia to France. Uh, one corollary of this is that the standard of living from 1915 to 1950 not only stagnated but often regressed. A second important aspect of that is the standard of living was unequal in spatial terms. So the center and the south were actually the center of um, were the were the center of of poverty. Now, in Tunisia, of course, this started to provoke a wide-ranging set of anti-colonial uh, and anti-French activities. There were fighters who went to Palestine uh, amidst a broader colonial effort in the region. Uh, at the same time, there were local uprisings in uh, Zeramdin. There was a general strike in Sfax that was put down rather brutally. Uh, and meanwhile, more broadly, there were, there were a wide-ranging global process going on through which decolonization came to be very much on the agenda, not merely of Tunisia, but of all the colonized territories. Uh, first, there was the question of Syria and Lebanon being free from the mandate yoke. More broadly, India achieved its independence. Uh, and in, in general, there was, during the Cold War, there was a wide-ranging process of global decolonization within which colonization as a political architecture for value flows from poor countries to richer ones was placed into question by a range of forces that were mobilized throughout the global south but especially uh, primarily in Asia and Africa although they also of course had uh, support throughout the Latin American region. Um, at the same time the US was basically oriented to controlling this process of decolonization to make sure that the overall economic architecture of the globe remained intact. So the idea was to prevent these countries from pursuing the same developmental paths that countries like Euro in Europe and the US and also to some later Japan would be able to achieve. Now in 1952 uh, the French basically had, uh, had offered Tunisia co-sovereignty, which was basically a euphemism for continued colonization. Uh, in turn, when this was not accepted by the nationalist leadership, uh, there was mass jailing of the, of the national leadership. There was also mass jailing of the trade union leadership. Uh, in Cabon, which was a peninsula to the east of Tuni Tunis, there was a systematic attack by the French population, by the French army, on the local Tunisian population, which was the spur for a kind of broadening of the anti-colonial consciousness and also an awareness and a willingness to immediately take action to move against the colonial apparatus. Uh, so this, uh, th there was in turn an anti-colonial insurgency which exploded throughout Tunisia from 1952 to 1954. Uh, it had a mix of both causes and also facilitators. For one thing, the neo was involved in 
uh, arming and providing logistical support and some level of coordination to these guerrilla fighters. The Ushtete, or the Nationalist Trade Union, which had also organized the 1947 strike, was also extremely involved in supporting the anti-colonial insurgency, especially in the south, in the mining regions, which are also the mountainous regions and were much harder for the French to repress. Uh, as you can see from this map, the, the fighting was primarily on the western flank, abutting Algeria, and also in the south. As you get closer to the major population centers, and also as you get closer to the major areas of French colonization, were primarily in the northern strip, you see comparatively few uh, guerrilla attacks because the French were able to maintain what they thought was a better control over the, what they called the security situation in those regions. The other, issue, the other uh, factor which was fueling the anti-colonial revolt was that these western and southern portions of the country were much drier and were comparatively more, more underdeveloped than the northern countries. So in fact, there was a greater human fuel and human willingness to sacrifice directly in the interest of national liberation from the French. Furthermore, in the south, this was the area under the most, uh, that felt the heavy, it was called the military territories, and this was experiencing most heavily colonial oppression under the French. They were under constant military occupation. Now, by the end of, uh, by close to the end, summer and fall of 1954, not only were the Tunisians uh, systematically killing colonial collaborators, in other words, the Tunisians who, collab who were collaborating with colonialism, but they were also attacking French farms, thereby making the entire system of French uh, colonial extraction and French colonial farming no longer possible, since it obviously depended on stability. Uh, the economic activities depended on political stability uh, in order to continue. This also started to occur in some of the mining regions, which were the other major source of French wealth. Now, by the summer, late summer of uh, 1954, the French were basically prepared to move to some form of the negotiating table with the Tunisians, especially the neo Destour. Um, Part of this was, of course, the desire to safeguard the economic relationships, which were the raison d'etre of colonialism. Another issue was that in November 1954, the Algerian Revolution had exploded to the west of Tunisia. And above all, the French feared a united pan-Maghrebi uh, anti-colonial front, which would unify all of the Maghreb in uh, anti-colonial insurgency against the French. Finally, the neo-destroyer itself began to be apprehensive that it was losing control of the rebellion as it was beginning to congeal internally and beginning to point, uh, set, its horizon, set its sights on horizons somewhat different from the neo-destroyer. At this point, the neo-destroyer was primarily oriented towards a phased and carefully choreographed decolonization, but oriented towards continued ties with the French. The Felaga, who were the anti-colonial insurgents, primarily based in the west and in the south, were also primarily from the tribes. They were primarily, uh, primarily herders uh, or small farmers or landless farmers, and they had no interest in uh, any sort of alignment with the French. They, in fact, started to be oriented towards the east, especially to Cairo, which was then a center of uh, pan-Arab nationalism. In late 1954, 
the Destour uh, and the French made arrangements to disarm the fighters or for them to surrender on the condition of their amnesty. In fact, most of the fighters turned in old weapons and did not turn in their actually functioning weapons and therefore they were essentially prepared for a relaunching of the insurgency if things didn't go their way. Uh, and what, what the neo Destour was bargaining for was um, internal sovereignty at that point. Now, in 1955, a great variety of events started to come together. On the one hand, the Neo-Destor leadership officially agreed to this uh, formula of internal sovereignty, which included continued French control of the agricultural lands and also included continued French military presence. For example, the base in the north, in Benzert, and also continued French control over the southern military territories. At the same time, Salah ben Youssef, was then traveling the world. He was in Karachi, he was in China, and he was in Bandung at the 1955 conference. And he was increasingly himself in Congress with the emerging anti-colonial and developmentalist mood, which was emerging then across the South and beginning to harden and congeal in a set of institutions and meetings, which were actually beginning to give a programmatic form uh, to this anti-colonial spirit. And of course, Nasser had been very active in these, this variety of programs, meetings, and convocations. It was at this point in uh, mid to late 1955 that there, the split between, within the neo-destor started, uh, started to become permanent. The Ujdete, the Nationalist Trade Union, which represented the formal workforce and had about 100,000 people organized within it, ended up siding with Habib Bourguiba because he essentially traded them uh, the acceptance of their economic and social program for their support uh, for his side of the split in the national liberation struggle. In fact, there was considerable discord within the Ujtete over siding with Habib Bourguiba, and they tended to see both Habib Bourguiba and Salah ben Yusuf as equivalent in economic terms. Um, nevertheless, what occurred through this is something very significant for subsequent Tunisian uh, history and post-colonial history and geopolitical alignments, which is that what we could call the national question or the effective control over the country, over the political apparatus, uh, became in a sense split from the social question. The Ujdete had the most advanced social program and it was aligned with the Neo-Destor, and it was also aligned through uh, the AFL-CIO with, uh, with the Western states and with NATO. Whereas the national question in its more radical form, meaning the immediate expulsion of the French, was in fact aligned with Salah ben Youssef, and this was separated from the social question. This split between a social question and a national question, which in effect included control over the land, uh, had significant repercussions for Tunisian post-colonial history. Uh, in turn, the, the uh, Yusufite Rebellion started slowly at the end of 1955 and really exploded in early 1956, uh, and it was primarily in the south, and it ended up being far larger than the first rebellion, even though it has a far smaller historiographical footprint. Uh, if the first rebellion had perhaps 2,700 people under arms, the second stage, the Yusufite Rebellion, had something closer to 4,000. 
Uh, it proceeded to get arms from Cairo that were transited through Libya and used li uh, newly decolonized Libya as a rear base for arms transfers and also as a sanctuary for fighters. Uh, at the same time, there, there was to some extent uh, battlefield coordination between Algerians and Tunisians across the Tunisian south and across the Tunisian western strip, which shared a border with Algeria. In fact, the continued, the continued colonial insurgency against the Algerian fighters continued to fuel the Yusufites uh, by overstepping the border and attacking often civilians in the western border areas. This in turn pushed more and more people in the western and southern regions to support the Yusufite rebellion because they understood that their fate was tied more and more to the fate of the region as a whole and especially the fate of the Algerian revolution. Uh, under the pressure of this armed insurgency, which, was which is very clear in the historical timeline, as in it's entirely erased from the history books, by March 20th, the French agreed to what was called full sovereignty. Now, full sovereignty is a euphemism and also a bit of a deception, in that what full sovereignty did not include was the removal of French colonial settlers, uh, the removal of French control over the banking system, the end of uh, the use of the franc, uh, the end of the fixed exchange rates, uh, the tariffs remained in place, the French control over mining remained in place for a little bit, uh, French control of uh, the French military emplacements remained in place. In fact, in many ways, it wasn't a full sovereignty at all. But insofar as uh, the, there was a commitment to the removal of some of these things like the military installations uh, and French acceded to the possible revision of these accords, this was entirely the fruit of the Arab nationalist Yusufite wing of the National Liberation Movement. Uh, what is significant here is to both see that it was this pressure which, drove, which allowed Habib Wargiba and his wing of the Neo-Destor to present themselves as the leader of the National Liberation Movement, and it was also this pressure which gave them uh, the victory. So in a sense, they were able to harvest fruits that they themselves did not plant. At the same time, there was also, uh, in 1956, there were the Ujdete, the Nationalist Trade Union, put forward a comprehensive plan, a social, a social plan, which you could have called a Marshall Plan to develop the center and south. Uh, it envisioned budgetary spending, which was equivalent to about a quarter of Tunisian uh, GDP at that time, to develop the center and south. This was in reaction to the massive developmental uh, differences and distinctions that continued to prevail between the north of Tunisia, in other words, the more irrigated, richer Tunisia, the area of Tunisia which was able to benefit more from the trade links, the area of Tunisia which was able to benefit more from relative industrialization, uh, compared to the center and south, which continued to be centers of unemployment, which continued to be centers of poverty, and which in fact continued to be centers of, um, of, of uh, colonial underdevelopment and where the French continued to maintain certain forms of military control, especially in the South. In this sense, it's significant that, and it is also completely unwritten in the documentary record, that Habib Wargiba collaborated with the French to put an end to the Yusufite rebellion literally while they were signing the Independence Accords in March 20th, 1956. So this insurgency was not in the main put down uh, because of social support 
amongst Habib Arriba supporters, amongst the Neodestor, it was put down by the colonial power. Um, by doing so, it was able to, the French were able to set the terms of the post-colonial social, political, and geopolitical trajectory. Now, from 1956 onwards, there was a battle within Tunisia between uh, a kind of latent or embryonic wish for both full-scale development of the country and also burning shifts for shifts in geopolitical alignment and the ambitions of the neo-destor to continue on the path of alignment with the West. So this took a variety of forms. On the one hand, uh, um, almost immediately, America started to pour in massive amounts of developmental aid. In fact, uh, after South Korea and Israel, the US, the Tunisia received the almost probably the most per capita aid of any country in the entire third world from about 1956 to 1963. Most of this, in fact, came in the form of food aid, which uh, was basically meant to deal with the fact that you had a population of 300,000 people who were totally excluded from the productive apparatus, were essentially starving, uh, and were very much from these same regions where the French had just put down their rebellion, and furthermore, were still very much hearing uh, all the propaganda with the pan-nationalist, pan pan-Arab propaganda that was emanating and continued to emanate from Cairo. 1956 to 1961 were absolutely central years in both the consolidation of the neo-distort government and its uh, conflictual relationship with the notion of post-colonial development in a neo-colony. On the one hand, there were many, many proposals for agrarian reform, for immediate industrialization, uh, for labor-intensive uh, forms of industrialization, which came in both from the UJTTE, which then represented the social, uh, the social thrust of the National Liberation Movement, and also came in from their advisors. Uh, they were in touch with neo-structuralist uh, French economists like Gerard de Stan de Bernis, uh, and also other, uh, other kindred thinkers. At the same time, uh, throughout the region, the situation was, of course, getting completely out of control from the perspective of both France and the United States, uh, and therefore it was getting more, the question of containing uh, Tunisia on a specific neo-colonial path was getting ever more urgent and ever more precarious for the, specific, for the, for the U.S. and Europe. Um, it was front page news, the 1958 coup or revolution in Iraq, uh, and Habib Bourguiba was constantly battling with Nasserist Egypt over both over leadership of the Arab world. Um, he was both of them were constantly attacking one another. Uh, Habib Bourguiba ended up sending emissaries to assassinate Salah ben Yusuf uh, in Berlin in the early 1960s, and made constant references to so-called revolutionaries or self-styled revolutionaries who in fact were simply carrying out, were carrying out military coups and had no legitimacy. A very clear reference to Egypt, but of course also a reference to Syria and Iraq, which were then also pursuing more or less non-aligned or increasingly Soviet-aligned developmental paths during this period. Now, it ended up that under the pressure, under this kind of ambient developmental pressure, which was emanating both from the region, but also within Tunisia, the government found itself in a very difficult situation where it had to respond in one form or another to this, to this pressure 
to, to carry out some form of planning program. Some of this was in fact prophylactic. It wanted to avoid an agrarian reform. And in fact, fundamental government policy from 1956 onwards had been about avoiding an agrarian reform and avoiding changes in the rural productive structure so as to maintain essentially the traditional order in the countryside. Um, it also had to contend with the students in Paris where many Tunisian students were studying who were there, for, who were there engaging with Maoism, uh, various strains of Marxism, and were uh, basically getting sponsored to be there by the Tunisian government and were in supposedly Tunisian government aligned organizations, the Tunisian General Union of Students, but were in fact completely outside of the control and the wishes of the Tunisian government. This was another source of kind of ambient developmental pressure. Uh, a third source of ambient developmental pressure was of course continued to be from the Ujdete itself, which represented the formal, formalized workforce and therefore wanted to advocate for a form of development which would create jobs for the working class, which then continued to be uh, rapidly growing and continued to be rapid, uh, continually underemployed. In 1962, the situation in fact got not better but worse from the perspective of the Tunisian government as Algeria suddenly achieved independence and the Algerian workers uh, on many of the colonial farms simply took them over and put them under cogestion or a uh, form of self-management. Uh, this also occurred in some of the Algerian factories. Uh, and this was just as the Algerian leadership, uh, according to a lot of recent scholarship, was very much aligned itself with Maoism. So the situation, of course, again, in this front was increasingly uh, out of control for a Tunisian government that, again, wanted to maintain Tunisia as fundamentally aligned with the Western alliance and did not want any form of class struggle-based Marxism to emerge as an ideology which would structure social programs or developmental planning. And again, this is very much explicit and continuously repeated in the literature, in the biographies, in the memoirs, and in the propaganda of the neo Destour. From 1959 to 1965, it is constant attacks on Arab nationalism, uh, on the Nasserist experience, on agrarian reform, and on uh, any form of Marxism. It ended up that from 1962 to 1969, they put in place uh, from the top down uh, expansive plan of ISI, or import substitution industrialization, uh, putting in a huge portion of the government budget in each year into developing uh, the, the native industrial plan. However, in the rural sector, things were much more complicated and much less beneficial for uh, the lower classes in Tunisia. What the government did there was it put in place from 1962 to 1964 slowly, and then from 1964 to 1969 much more aggressively, a cooperative program, which basically was forced cooperativization of the medium uh, and smallholders around colonial around former colonial land that the government slowly nationalized. Instead of doing a bottom-up consultation process, the government, which had no relationship with the southern and western small farmers because it had no organization capable of reaching out to them, instead uh, operated from the top down and created uh, model villages. It put in place a large mechanization program, which in fact worsened the labor question or the question of unemployment rather than alleviated it, uh, and so forth. 
The end result of this was in fact large-scale flight from the countryside to the cities uh, and continued poverty, especially in the southern regions where there was no government attention whatsoever to questions of the specific, specific, specificities of underdevelopment and rural development in these southern and western drier regions where very different forms of uh, agricultural development would have been necessary if the government had wished to really do a consultative uh, and meaningful developmental program. Um, now, the end result of this was, of course, that most of the population ended up not included but excluded from the developmental pact. Uh, from 1962 to 1969, which was in fact the heyday of socialist planning, uh, income differentials widened uh, rather than lessened. At the same time, um, the, the government's alliance with the West suffered severely uh, from 1967 onwards when uh, the Israeli defeat of the Arab armies and U.S. alliance with Israel in carrying out that defeat provoked considerable unrest, not merely amongst the student population, but amongst the Tunisian population more broadly, which had a considerable attachment to various forms of Arab nationalism during this period. Um, at the end of this period, underdevelopment continued to splay across the country, and the, country was so, the country's developmental programs were so inadequate that they, in fact, had to export labor to Libya, Germany, France and later Saudi Arabia because it was literally impossible for the government uh, to carry out a developmental program which could include people in develop a developmental process internal to the country. This was in large measure because the government had had no interest in ex uh, dispossessing the large landholders uh, and it also allowed other forms of uh, accumulation to continue, for example, in the tourist sector. So rather than so, for example, the land or those forms of capital to go to the lower classes to allow them to participate meaningfully in the developmental pact, the government instead adopted for, went for a class compromise and the end result of that was continued underdevelopment. Now because underdevelopment is essentially path dependent, places that are underdeveloped stay underdeveloped, places that are richer stay richer, underdevelopment was much worse in the western and southern regions. Now the western and southern regions were also the regions where arid land agriculture prevailed. They were also regions where the government put in place the least amount of industrial investments and they were also places where the government could not, and could not really put in any tourism infrastructure which was another major source for jobs. The end result of this was that these regions uh, from 1956 to 1969, and of course from 1969 to 2011, continued to be the epicenters of Tunisian underdevelopment. And part of why they continued to be that epicenter was because once they had been excluded from the developmental pact because their political representative had been excluded from the National Liberation Movement, this was Salah Ben Youssef, uh, there was no vector or mechanism for them to assert themselves as political and social agents demanding inclusion within uh, social programs or developmental processes. This very much brings us up to uh, the present day. Now this is a quotation from what uh, one of the processes which has occurred post-2011, which is the Instance Vérité and Dignité, uh, which is the Tunisian version of a truth and reconciliation process. Somewhat similar and somewhat different 
than processes which have occurred in uh, Guatemala, which have occurred in post-apartheid South Africa. Uh, somewhat uniquely in Tunisia, entire regions have been able to put forward claims of being victim regions uh, and ask for socioeconomic redress or to demand that the post-revolutionary government do something to fix the developmental disparities between coast and interior or between the, uh, you know, the continually impoverished lower classes in the interior and south of the country and the relatively more affluent people in the coast. Now, what's significant in this quotation, and you have to know that Gafsa is in the southwest uh, of the country, is that uh, this is from a school teacher in Gafsa, and what he is expressing here is a feeling amongst the people inhabiting these regions that the lack of highlighting of these regions in collective memory is something that is directly related to uh, the repression of the armed resistance movement and the exclusion of uh, the role of Gafsa in the armed resistance and the Yusufite resistance from in 1955 and 1956. Because they were excluded from historical memory, they lack a scaffolding or they lack a kind of historical memory through which they can make claims upon the present by means of the past. They lack an ability to say we were excluded then and we continue to be excluded now. And they lack the ability to say they were excluded then because the entire existence of the Yusufite rebellion has been almost overwhelmingly excised from post-colonial historiography. Now, my research is, of course, only one portion of what has been a renaissance in interest in the Yusufite rebellion in post-2011. Whereas pre-2011, there were perhaps one book uh, and several journal articles about the Yusufite rebellion after 2011, it's been one, two, three, four monographs a year about the Yusufite rebellion, uh, which very much shows that the process of restoring this rebellion to its place in collective memory and thereby highlighting the fact that these same regions were excluded then, continue to be excluded now, is actually a process which is proceeding currently in Tunisia itself and is a process which I am hoping to contribute also both uh, through my research and through presentations like this. So thank you very much.